my case. Hi, how are you? Good. How about you? Good, 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 good. Busy, good. Well, Linda and I are here. Say hi, Linda. Konnichiwa. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I loved reading about what you kiddos did in sixth grade, you sixth grade boys. Um, And it just caught my attention so quickly. I was a teacher, and I was given the lowest class in high school. Two teachers said they'd quit if they had to keep teaching that. So as a new teacher, I walked in in October teaching this class. So a lot of that was familiar to me, except I was working with high school kids. I love the sixth grade boys. They can be a handful. And I don't think you should harbor any guilt over that experience, but I loved reading about it and what you kids did and, you know, the innocence of youth. That was the essay, correct? Yes, Mrs. O. Mrs. O, right, of course. I I blanked on the title of it, yeah. the Uh, The snowballing of Mrs. O. Right. Well, thank you for reading that. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, we. I still feel guilty. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I don't think we really meant it the way she thought we did. Um, but we could have been kinder. That's for. That's for sure. Well, you know, you were a really typical sixth grade boy. So please don't harbor any more guilt about that. If, if she had chosen to teach longer, she would have learned how to manage you guys and. Yeah. And maybe teaching wasn't really her thing. Right. So. Uh, well, thank you again for reading it. That's a, that's one of my favorite essays. It took a while to write that one, but I, I, but I, was, I was excited about it. So I appreciate it. Yeah. The, the first sentences just pulled me in. You are so good. Now I want to read more of your stuff. <laughs> oh, that's, there's a lot out there. So um, I'm actually putting together a whole essay collection now. I'm getting close. So we'll see. Excellent. Welcome to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association provides creative opportunities for all ages. Get creative with us at the Mesquite Fine Arts Center, 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartscenter.com or on Facebook, The Art Box. I'm hogging the microphone here, Steve. <laughs> That's fine. I'm always, I hate my voice. I'm always happy when someone else talks. So today we have Case Johnston, who is a, I, I will say my favorite, I got to watch out who I'm going to make mad now, my, my, my favorite fiction author who writes for my favorite publisher, that's Tory House Press. And our our good friend Kirsten Johanna Allen. So, and you notice I didn't say my favorite author because then Betsy Kwamid would be coming down and kicking me around. So. <laughs> you know, I just chatted with her on our brand new Utah Humanities podcast last Friday, and that was such a good time. Yeah, she's so good. Did she talk about her new book? She did. That's what we. Yep. That's what we interviewed her about. And, um, it's a really great book, and 
Um, we had such a good time. We really had a ball. I had to keep it, you know, like PG because it's now officially the Utah Humanities podcast. It's no longer my literally podcast. So, you know, I had to, had to, what's the word? I'd stay on the sidelines on certain things and keep my mouth clean. Um, but it was. It was uh, I listened it, to one the other day. My wife said, How did you like it? I said, Well, they cussed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if, that's, if it's the bourbon beer and books one, there's a that lot of cussing. That was the one. So this one, my my new boss says, well, you can keep everything to Bible swears. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. Bible swears works for me. Um, uh, but Pe- Betsy is just amazing. I read her new book, and um, it's just fa- it's just fabulous. And she's just so cool to talk to. Yeah, she's a good kid. So I get to call her kid. I get to call you kid, too. Heck, I get to call Linda kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not talking about anything. I'll talk about other authors if you let me. You know that. You know, I'd, I'd rather talk about them than myself. So, so uh, well, no, we, we, yeah, we, we want to talk about you. And, <laughs> and full disclosure here, I took, I'm not sure, you didn't give grades, so I didn't fail. I, I took a writer's, writer's workshop from Case last, I think it was February in Zion. I think it was in Springdale. And thoroughly enjoyed it, as did my other, I think there was probably about 15 attendees, and we really had a good time. Yeah, it was super nice. It was really great to meet you, and I appreciate your comp- your compliment at the beginning of this. That's really, really cool to hear. Well, Case, I was reading your biography, mm-hmm. and it's amazing what your mother went through and you. You were born with, let me see if I can say this correctly, craniosynostosis? That's pretty darn close. Okay. That's pretty darn close, yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to tell our listeners about that? Sure. Um, yeah, so I was born with cranial synostosis in 1975, and that's what my first memoir is about. And the memoir really is a mix of research where I went around the country and I talked to some of the best neurosurgeons and plastic surgeons in the world about how to fix cranial synostosis. And I did. I delved into the medical history of the birth defect. So it's a it's a congenital birth defect. To go back a little bit. That happens when children are born with one or multiple of their cranial sutures fused at birth. So the brain doesn't have enough space to grow, or it has enough space to grow, but it'll push it'll push the skull in different directions. Um, and that's not good for the brain because eventually once it keeps pushing against that fused suture, you're going to run out of room for that brain to grow. That's not good. So that part of the brain, whichever is hitting up against that kind of that heavy skull, unmalleable skull is going to be affected, right? It's going to be affected negatively. And so what happens, and and this is a side note, but I learned from that, that our brains actually dictate the way our skulls look and not the opposite. And so I was born with my sagittal suture fully closed and both of my fontanelles fully closed. Um, So at 10 weeks old, my mom had to hand hand me over to a neurosurgeon to do a full craniectomy. And so I went around the country and interviewed families who had children who had gone through this interviewed doctors and then did a full kind of medical and historical delve into skull shapes and 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 cranial sutures and mythology around them and everything like that so it was really quite the book i'll never write anything like it again uh, it took me about three four years to write and research and it felt like i aged 10. it was a hard thing to write it was really really difficult because it was just so traumatic and i had to 
go back into not only my family's history, but other people's family's history, list, hear the stories, and then play them again while I wrote them. But that's why I'm a novelist now. And I'm, that's completely the truth. Like, if, if I didn't write that book, I don't think I'd ever be a novelist. Um, so that's how we're here. You said that you didn't know right away that you had this, right? It came out much later that your mother told you? Well, I, I knew that I'd always had it. Um, what's the word? Just kind of purposefully or not purposefully, you know, tucked those memories away. Um, and so I didn't, I knew that I had this. I didn't know the name of it, but I was basically told my whole life that I was born without soft spots, uh, which is relatively true. And that they had to open my head when I was a kid. So I knew that my whole life because the scars were there, you know, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty thick and, and, and remarkable and, and, and you can't avoid them. So I, you know, I knew my whole life that, and my head's pretty lumpy underneath the few, the little bit of hair I have left. That's why I'm, you know, I've taken real gain and, and all that stuff just to keep whatever I can keep up top. <laughs> But I, what I didn't know until I interviewed my mom is that I had died for about 30 seconds, 40 seconds oh, wow. uh, af- after the after the surgery because they had given me the wrong blood in a transfusion. The doctor said, you know, you got to call your priest, call your family, say goodbye, he's gone. And so what I didn't know was that, that my mom had basically lost me um, at 10 weeks. Um, and that didn't come out until our interview when I was about 40. And so that was new to me the whole time. And I don't think she'd honestly let herself think about it for 40 years either. Um, Yeah. So a lot came out of that. And the crazy part is I start the book with that interview, but that was the last interview I actually did after going across the country um, because I knew it was going to be hard. You know, I knew it was going to be so hard. And so I put a, put a bottle of wine in front of my mom and I said, let's do this, you know? And yeah, so I didn't know that part. I didn't know that part, which is pretty, pretty heartbreaking. Oh, absolutely. And you said part of the reason you wrote this book and did the research was because you were concerned that you could pass possibly pass this down to a son. Yeah, that's absolutely the truth. So when we got pregnant and pregnant in 2010, um, that was the first thing I worried about was, was I going to pass this down uh, to Lucas? And so I started doing research and I found that there's a lot of memoirs, you know, memoirs, especially from the mother's mom's perspectives, because this honestly, this book is about moms. This book is about how moms will do anything for their kids. They will fight insurance companies. They will fight doctors. They will fight family to protect their kids, to get the right surgery done because it needs to be done. So this book really, you know, it, it's about moms. And so when I was looking at this, there was a lot of memoirs from moms. There's stories of having children and letting them have surgery and all that. And then there were medical texts. And but there was no mix. There was no mix of the two. There was no memoir slash creative nonfiction slash research. And I didn't really want to write the book, to be honest with you, Linda. I did not want to write this book at all. But I had to. It was the only it was a book that I had to write and it wasn't fun and it was hard. So I started to do research, but I couldn't find those things. You know, I could find them in medical texts, but I couldn't find somebody to really talk about it. Turns out that when it comes to congenital birth defects, it falls in line with all the rest, really. You know, there's a small percentage that is, there's a, there's a, a good percentage that is like hereditary. There's a good percentage that is uh, environment-based, you know, the size of the womb. There's a good, a larger percentage that is, that is drug and alcohol use while the baby is in the womb and that falls along really closely to a lot of other congenital birth defects you know those those percentages fall out pretty pretty close to that mine was they we believe mine was probably environmental 
that the room was just too small and that I was just in a weird place. And sometimes it can just happen, you know, something happens in the DNA. And, and the, really interesting, I'm sorry, but this is there's a lot behind this. Really th- interesting that happens is some, sometimes they think that there might be, that there's research that shows that the there's something in the brain that might tell the skull that it's, do, it's done growing, so the skull will fuse itself, which is really, really interesting branch of that research, where the brain says, I'm done, I'm done growing at this point, so I'm going to let the skull fuse. You know, and as you all know, the, the young men's skulls don't fully fuse until they're in their 20s, um, and so to come out at birth with a, fu- a fully fused skull in, in, in one of your sutures, is, it, it's, it can be pretty scary. Sorry, that's sure. so, such a long answer, Linda. I mean, there's so much research behind it. Oh, I appreciate your answer. And I love that you wrote it about moms. You see that all the time, well, the, the lengths that mothers go to to get the help for their children. Yeah. Yeah, they do. It's remarkable what they will do. And my mom was the same way. You know, even when I inter- interviewed her at the end, I, she, you know, she cried and she said, I'm sorry I'm being so weak. Oh. <laughs> you know, and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, mom, you are like the strongest person I've ever met. Yeah. You know, just, you know, and then that was this was very, very that was very emblematic of all the mothers I met across the country. So, yeah, it was a book that took a lot of going to fiction. I had to separate myself from that book because it was just so hard to write and to delve back into those stories that I started writing fiction every other day during the week for the first time in my life. I'd never taken a fiction class in my life, really. That's what all of this came from, trying to get a break from writing that book about cranial synestosis that I became a novelist. Wow. Wow. And you write so well. Oh my gosh. It just, it's, it's so good. It just pulls the reader in at the very beginning. Well, I appreciate that so much. I really, really do. The writing is so important to me. The sentences. I love sentences. And you've won several awards. Yeah. I've been lucky. Um, yeah, I've had, uh, I've been lucky. Everything that his book length that has come out so far has done pretty well, and it, they seem to get more as they go. So this, that's, that's great. You know, nothing to quit the day job, but, you know, it's, yeah. it's great. And your day job, you work at Utah State University? No, I'm currently the manager, just started in April. I'm the manager for the Utah Center of the Book and Utah's representative to the Library of Congress. Um, oh, yeah, it's the most wonderful job. <laughs> I have an amazing boss. So it's my job to, there's two main parts of it. One is to, I run and curate the Utah Book Festival each year. And then I am kind of, kind of put a stamp on what the Utah literary scene can be like through the Utah humanities lens. And so it's like, uh, it's a great job. I love it. I'm I'm busy as could be right now, but I am so happy to have it. It's kind of like a dream job for me. Hey, you were teaching high school, right? I was the last two years. So I was at the university for about since 2008, really teaching online, contracting with like 10 universities at a time to teach creative writing. And I was doing great until COVID. Um, and then the contracts dried up for some reason. Everything just kind of went weird. I don't know why. And then, so I wanted something more secure. So I went to the high school in 2021 um, and taught there for the last two years. 
and then this job came along and there's just i put you know the one you know in that that moment you're like i gotta put absolutely everything i can into getting this job because it's perfect and <laughs> i did i mean i pulled out references from 20 years ago i was i was like i gotta get this job and um so i'm really excited about it. high school's hard high school is really really hard i wasn't writing honestly i didn't write for two years i wrote a novel in two years which for me is pretty darn slow um but it took me two years to go to write that my agent is actually going out on submission with that novel after labor day so fingers crossed everybody um uh, we're not actually you're not supposed to talk about being on submission when you're on submission it's kind of like you know bad juju so i won't <laughs> that's okay we won't publish that until okay. you're <laughs> okay the, the, so is this part of your breakthrough i notice i believe it i saw it on facebook when you said breakthrough um, no, that book is so. That's a nut, that's a collection of essays that I'm almost done with now. That I kind of uh, and this is all about music. This is essays, so this you know nonfiction. And I've been working on it for that for probably a year and a half, maybe more. I finally felt the shape of the whole manuscript. If that makes any sense. Like before, I was just kind of writing just to write because I had no time to edit. But now I've kind of felt the shape. That was the breakthrough. Like, what does this get the shape? And it's like I kind of see the. I'm at like fifty-eight thousand words, but I kind of see the end being at like seventy thousand words. So it's a huge breakthrough to know that this book is almost done. So that's where we are with that one. So one book on submission, which is another novel. Uh, one book coming out in 2024 with Tory House, and then the collection of essays I hope to start shipping to contests this fall. So there, lots of stuff. Off, what do they call? I'm so awful with cliches. I think I told you this, Steve. I'm the worst with cliches in the world. Uh, what is a lot of pots on the iron? A lot of irons? And what is it? <laughs> I think it's irons in the fire. Irons in the fire. There we go. My mom's the same way. She she mixes things. She always says things like, "Don't let the horse." wag the dog's tail you know and i'm like i don't know what that means but we'll figure it out i love that and i'm going to send something to you after this is over because uh my husband i'm really bad at that too and my yeah. husband found a great funny about all of that uh, i will try to find that in my stack of papers i've saved and send it to you well Please let's do. let's move to how i discovered case and that's let the wild grasses grow i i love the book you turned me on to other another book because of that that i loved and i just didn't and it's fiction but yet it's not yeah wild grasses you mean yes yeah it's mostly fiction della and her mom in that book i mean that is my grandma i mean they had that was my grandma that's the way she used language that's her personality. She was sharp as as a tack. Like I think I got that cliche right. Sharp as a tack. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, was a smart aleck. Nobody could tell her anything. And so that was her personality. Her and her mom, like in the book, Della and her mom, that the mix of them two, that was my grandma all the way through. My grandpa's story or the John Cordova story in it, who's also named after my grandpa, that's pretty close to his his time. That's pretty close to how he lived his life. He instead of in the army, he was in the submarine. That was actually my dad was in the submarine in Vietnam. So we got I got the story at the end about the engine going out, actually from my dad. My dad experienced that, uh, but it was during Vietnam, not in World War II. Um, so all those subway stuff came from my dad, who who um, would tell the stories, and so I did research to make sure that everything lined up. And 
but the, my grandpa did. That's pretty close. He lost his mom and dad early. He actually lost his uh, mom in a car accident, just like in the book, where he lost his dad that way and he lost his mom to breast cancer shortly after. Was adopted by his abusive grandpa uh, Cordova, and that's all really true. And there's there's family lore about how cruel this man was. And then my uncle, my my grandpa's older brother Walter, actually really raised the kids um, almost like John's brother in the book. So John's timeline is very similar to my grandpa Cordova's. My grandma's, however, the personality is all there. That is all my grandma Cordova Chavez. The timeline, the plotline is pretty different because my grandma, that was my reimagining of it. Like what if this woman who's so smart, but you know, she dropped out of school in third grade. She had her first kid at 13. She had her first heart attack at 42, you know, had a really, really hard, hard life. And to be honest with you, like my grandpa, what in real life wasn't the easiest person to live with, even though by the time I was put on this earth, he was, you know, my, he was wonderful. My mom always says, well, that's not the the dad I knew, you know, we all understand those stories, but you know, that was my reimagining of like this smart woman. She always used to say to me, you know, you know, you're so smart. Don't, you know, da, 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 and I, you know, and I always think she's smart. She just never had a chance. Um, so the, her plot line in the book is just that reimagining, like, what if my grandma had a chance to, to go to school, to go to school past third or fourth grade or whatever it was and um, live a life, you know, the life, a, a privileged life that I have that they didn't have. I, I, I'm the first Cordova Chavez person in that line to ever graduate college. Um, and so it's like, they just didn't have those chances. And so that was, that was the reimagining of it. That's, that was the fiction of it. Yeah. And it was just an incredible book. Um, and, and certainly being with AT&T, I was around when we were doing multitasking. And so it always, that's always intrigued me. And then you bought that out. Um, that Della was, she she could multitask her brain, right. and, and the example there is that she would be out with her with her father harvesting corn, and she would talk to everybody because she was rather gregarious. But in another little section of her mind, she was keeping track of every ear of corn that he picked. So that multitasking thing, which got me to ask you where that came from, and then that came from you told me Code Girls. So I read that right. book by Liza Mundy. Right. Which then tied in because I had spent some time in Dayton, Ohio at Sugar Camp and parts of the Code Girls book and certainly very important in World War II. um, They did a lot of work in Sugar Camp in Dayton, Ohio Hmm. to create um, the machines that decoded the German code. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a a great book, isn't it? I mean, I mean, it is full of Liza Mundy did such an amazing job with that. And it's interesting because I was originally going to have Della be like kind of like a Rosie the Riveter character in the book. But then I was just watching, what is it? It's not CNBC, where they live stream the Tucson Book Festival. And they had Liza Monday on Monday on there. And I was just watching her and she's talking about cold girls. And I was like, that's it. That was one of those like clarity moments, you know, within a book where you're like, my character has to be a code girl. And, that and, and that's and that certainly worked for you. It certainly yeah, worked for was, me. Well, that was, yeah, that was that was one of the things you're like, holy, holy crap, right? That is so cool. So I ordered that book, read that book, and then tried to kind of like mimic some of the stories in there um, without actually copying any of the stories in there, you know, trying to create one out, one out of nowhere. But yeah, so that was one of those moments of clarity. We were like, oh my gosh, my character needs to be this and not that. And then once I figured that out, it was over. That I, broke. I think I finished that book in like 
three weeks. You know, it was one of those moments. Oh, was it really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't, yeah, I was kind of, kind of probably, I think I was flailing around for a bit. But then once I figured that out, it's like, well, she's got to go east, right? She's got to go east instead of west. Because Rose, I was thinking Rosie, the Riveter in like California. But once I figured that out, once I read Mooney's book, I was like, yeah, she's got to go east. And where does she got to go? She's got to go to these private all girls schools where they, where they plucked all these really brilliant women from in 1940, in the 1940s. And, and then I was thinking, well, he's going to bring out book number two, where John and Della would get back together. But you wove it all in one book. Yeah, and that wasn't, you know, that was, that was kind of Kirsten's idea. Was it? Uh, yeah, like I had kind of ended it where they really weren't together, and Kirsten's like, I think you need to bring them back together, and I'm like, okay, I can do that because you'll see with my writings, like I don't. I care about plot, but I don't care about plot. Like if somebody asked me to change plot, I'm pretty cool with it. But if somebody asked me to change Della, I'd be pretty mad. I'd be like, no, no, I'm not changing Della. I'm not going to, I'm not going to cut her language and I'm not going to, you know what I mean? Like if somebody asked me to change a character that I care about, I won't do it. But if somebody says, oh, I think you can change the ending. I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And Kirsten loved the characters. So we were on good footing right from the very beginning. Well, for me, I've always thought Della would be a young man's dream for a best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, she was strong. She took care of things. Yeah. And, and she was always smarter than the boys. She was. <laughs> yeah. She always was. And you know what's funny is that, so my friend Trevor, he's been in, he's won a couple of awards for reality TV shows. He read the book and he reached out. And he said, "I didn't think I was gonna re- I was gonna like your book. I really don't like this type of book." And I said, "Okay." Um, he said, "But I loved it." And I said, "Oh, well, that's fantastic." So he actually adapted it into a screenplay. But he was so drawn by Della like that that the screenplay, having only you know, there's not a lot of words and there's not a lot of pages in a screenplay. Basically, the screenplay is from Della's point of view, and John is kind of a secondary character just because he was so drawn to her, too. It's really interesting. Well, how's that going? We're out on submission to festivals right now. We just have to wait forever. We've So far, we have heard from two festivals. One, Acceptance, which is from the uh, International Hispanic uh, Film Festival, and a no from another one. So, you know, that's about par for the course. So um, we want to hit a couple festivals, hopefully get some awards, and then take it to our agents to see if they maybe can try to sell it or something like that. But that's, you know, that's a dream. That's a dream down the line. Yeah, I, I could see that on Broadway. That'd be really cool. If you know anybody, call. Just call. <laughs> I'll, I'll, we'll start working our – I think I think Linda has a cousin that's a, a famous Broadway director. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I was like, which cousin? I don't think I know that cousin, Steve. Well, I was getting excited there for a minute. Oh, (laughs) sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. You can't believe anything I say, Case. Tell me just one more time the reason why you must leave. Tell me once more why you're sure you don't need me. Case, I, I taught math, so not so I'm totally coming from a different side of the brain than you. But mm-hmm. my question is, can you explain the creative writing process? Does this all just 
come to you one night in a dream, or do you wake up and little elves have written half the book, or what? Yeah. What exactly happens, and how do you how do you start? How long does it typically take to develop your characters and do the research for somebody that doesn't write? Can you kind of walk walk us through that? Process? Sure. Okay. Uh, you know, and I hate to give this answer because it's it's vague. But every project is different. Wish I had a formula for me, just for myself. But every project is different. So, like, if you look at Wild Grasses, I was writing an essay about picking chilies with my grandpa in his garden when I was a kid. That essay actually, part of that essay is going to be published this year in Memoir Magazine. It's really short. So I was thinking, I was writing an essay about that, you know, and I was like really going into, like if you, in the book, you can see I spent like a whole chapter about the family picking chilies and drawing chilies and all that stuff. My agent actually made me cut like a thousand words of chili talk, writing that essay about chilies, about how you hold chilies in your hand and you peel them and then you dry them and how we used to do that. And then he would take them to my grandma in, her, in the house and she would turn this batch of chilies and fresh tomatoes and everything into her salsa and... So I was writing an essay about that, and that was kind of like, well, I know these people as grandpa, grandparents. They were really like my best friends in the world. Um, they really, really were. And I know these people so well as who they were in their 60s, 70s, 60s and 70s and 80s. But who were they when they were kids? Because they wouldn't talk about it that much. They talked about, you know, my grandpa, like he followed the railroads from – Colorado, um, from Trinidad, from right by Trinidad, Colorado. And they talked about that and stuff, but they don't talk about how they picked onions in sunset, right? Uh, when they got here, they don't talk about all the stuff when they were kids. And I think it's just, just that generation, right? They went through hard times, but they don't want to, they just don't talk, they just didn't talk about it. And so I want, from there, I just started doing research about kind of like what would be their lives growing up as Mexican Americans or Neo Mexicanos, which is kind of the more, more, more useful term in rural Colorado during during that time period, during all those time periods, during the Dust Bowl, during World War II, during the Great Depression. I mean, look at the life, right? Using their personalities, I plopped them down where they were born and just started writing. You know, that's how that book happened. With other books, like the one that's coming out next year with with, Cat, with um, Story House Press, you know, that was a totally different thing. We were visiting Mexico, and I just fell in love with, with the, the town we were visiting in and just started writing description about that town and then all of a sudden you know i wrote in a character and that thing just took off and those characters end up moving to provo you know that one was that one was different and that one is so much so very much has so much memoir in it because one of the two protagonists one protagonist is a 13 year old boy growing up non-lds in utah uh that's basically me this funny but cranky old woman his great aunt who's basically my grandma again so i mean so these first two books so steve you'll like i think you'll like this next book because it almost feels it feels so much like wild grasses except for it's in the 90s and there's a lot more humor you know so that's the, the last one that my agent's out with now you know, my dad passed away from Alzheimer's two years ago, and that kind of stemmed from our experience with him and my love of baseball. So a mix of the two. And so that just came out. Of so there's no real there's no real formula. The key for me, though, is when I do get in that rhythm where I can write every day. Oh, my gosh, I can put a book out. 
you know, I really can put a book out. And so I do wake up because it's like usually I, I write at 5 a.m. in the morning, 5 a.m. in the morning with coffee. I have friends that write with alcohol, you know, and I can. I've tried once and oh, my gosh, it was so bad. Um, <laughs> it was so bad. I woke up the next morning wondering like, oh, these are awful elves, right? These are the worst elves ever. So but yeah, but when you're writing at 5 a.m. and you're not really awake, it is kind of like the elves, you know, it's kind of like the, the house is completely silent and and you're just letting yourself be there before you answer the first email. Because once I answer the first email, that all my creativity goes out the door. And so I've got about I've got about 45 minutes to an hour every morning to write. That's it. But in that time, if I'm feeling that, you know, it works really well. And that's every day. So it's like you, it's like run, training for a marathon. You know, you get up on that first run that you run. You you believe that you'll you'll be able to run 26 miles four months from then. And same thing with the book. That first paragraph you write, you believe that 80,000 words are going to come from it five or six months from then. I, that was really long-winded. I'm sorry. Oh, that was excellent. And, you know, my vision was that you spend all day writing your books, but it sounds like what you said, the most creative part is the first 45 minutes of your day. Yeah, yeah. Once I, write, once I start that first email, mm-hmm. I can't create anymore. Wow. Like once I let the, the world in, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm done. And with my jobs over the last, I don't know, forever, I, you know, I really got that time in the morning. And now Lucas is older. My son is 12 now. But for the first decade of his life, as soon as he woke up, that was it. The creativity was gone, too, because we, you know, I had to get him ready for school and sure. get him out the door and, and stuff like that. Now at 12, he'll sleep all day if you let him. Um, <laughs> but But between the ages of one and nine, you know, if I would get up at five, sometimes he'd get up at five fifteen. You never know when they're yeah. little, and so sometimes I'd only get fifteen minutes. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's all I get. I don't know. One day, I wonder. One day, if I have enough money that I don't have to work, how much I would actually write in the day? And I honestly think, Linda, I would probably only write for that hour a day. I really think so. Even if I didn't have a a day job. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think I wonder. You know, I really wonder. Oh, we should be able to tell you because we're both retired. <laughs> Are you writing all day? I'd like to say I'm editing all day, but then there's there's distractions, and yeah. and, and I'm really interested in distractions. With right, with yeah, how, they're really good. How <laughs> artists handle distractions? Yeah, well, they're they're distractions for a reason, you know. They're good at it. But yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if I would write all day. I know some people who do, who have the time, don't have to work. And, they do. They write a lot. Um, well, our friend Patricia Levy, who we interviewed, mm-hmm. she's an author. She told us that once she gets gone, she's gone. And her husband, I think, brings her meals. And she mm. doesn't change out of her pajamas. And she writes yeah. nonstop until she's done. That's amazing. That's amazing. I think I'd get tired of myself. You know, I think I would I would be like, I'm sick of being in my own brain. I need to get out of here. It's really annoying. But, you know, I... I I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know. I've never been able to try it to see if I, you know, can do more yeah, than just an hour. I'd love to try. Do you sometimes have to just put everything away because you're stuck and then come and address it another time? I know uh, with visual art, we have to do that sometimes. We get so stuck. We just have to walk away, put it away and take a break. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and how do you get back in? Um, yeah. A lot, yeah. A lot of times, if if you walk away, and then you come back and look at it later, all of a sudden you can see what you need to work on, or where the errors were, or what 
what was really good. You get you sometimes get pulled into to one part of the painting, and you mm-hmm. work so hard on that that it doesn't match the rest of the painting. <laughs> so, for example, right. you might work on an eye, and it looks like a great eye, and then you come back later, and you're like, oh, that eye should be up higher. It's you know, it's too far down by the nose, or so. yeah. Then what do you do? Well, I've taken eyes off before and moved them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. since we're in this subject, um, how do you handle mistakes? And do you have a critic in your head? Yeah. Um, I hate, I don't know. I don't know. That's hard. I I think with my fiction, I give myself so much more freedom. Non, my nonfiction, I feel like I have to get everything absolutely right. And if I don't, uh, I get, you know, I can get not upset. I'm past that point, I think, within the writing career that I get upset about. Nonfiction, I'm a lot harder on myself. Fiction, I want to, I do everything I can to get it right. But if I don't, I'm just not as hard on myself. As long as it doesn't, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, if that makes any sense. Like, if I'm writing something about a culture uh, or something or a people that if I get it wrong, it's going to hurt those, it's going to hurt the people in that culture. I will, that's something I take very seriously. I'm not going to make something up for story if it's going to be a stereotype or, you know, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff I take very seriously. And even with this last book, I, I, you know, I read it multiple times at copy editing just to make sure I got some, some things very, very right that would not hurt people when it comes to other things i'm not as i'm not as worried about it even if i mess mess up a date i'm not even that worried about it the key that the only thing i'm really worried about is making sure i get people right and that i don't misappropriate that's that's the thing where i give myself the hardest time in fiction Nonfiction, i just i just want to get it right because i don't want my brother calling me out on it every time is your brother your critic in your head uh he's the critic in my real life no um, no he's great <laughs> no he just kind of think someone like my brother or friends or my mom or anybody who's going to be in my nonfiction, I just want to make sure, I, you know, I don't like them coming to me saying, you know, you got, you got me wrong. You know, that's a hard, that's something hard to swallow or something hard to stomach. And so now I've gotten really good at in the writing of nonfiction to just say, well, they could have believed this or they could have felt this way or um, those kinds of things to kind of protect them and protect myself against getting it wrong. Or a lot of times now, like with somebody who's family or friends, I'll say they could have seen that day completely differently, you know, and that's that's a that's a way to get around getting it wrong. Um, if you kind of put that little that little amount of what I don't know the little caveat in there. So, yeah, so I'm harder on myself with not fiction. Fiction, I try to have fun. Honestly, I really just try to have fun. Case, we interviewed a writer a few days ago, and she told us that before she even learned the alphabet, she made all these perfect marks on a piece of paper, was writing, and and her mother saved that. But that's how she knew, even before she was able to write letters, that she wanted to be a writer. What, at mm-hmm. what point did you say to yourself, oh my gosh, I love to write and I love to read, and this is what I want to do? That's a great question. So I'd always written, like, even, like, sixth grade, I would write these really awful, horrible love poems to girlfriends or girls <laughs> that I had crushes on. And I actually 
they were like on that yellow, you know, that yellow lined paper. Yes. You know, that legal, legal pad. When I moved out when I was 18, like I cleared out my dresser drawers and found like 10 of them and they were so bad. I think my the classic one was like, I want you to come get my love. You know, that was the whole poem. And, uh, you know, I was like sixth or seventh grade. It was horrible. So I'd always done that. And then I would write these like massive letters to like girlfriends in high school. And so I know it sounds awful, but it's true. It professing like, you know, but I would retell stories about that time, you know, the other night when we were, you know, going to the movies, you know, and I would just retell these stories in these letters. So that was kind of the that's kind of looking back. That's a retrospective of saying, yeah, you've kind of always been a writer. I actually went to my freshman year of college. I went to the University of Utah in their pre-physical therapy uh, program. So I got accepted in their pre-physical therapy program out of high school. And that's what I wanted to do because I love athletics and I love human anatomy and uh, everything. And um, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And of course, like my dad was a real pragmatist, you know, he, there was no, there were, we never thought about going into the arts as a family. That was just, we just didn't. It was going to be physical therapy or it was going to be business or something mm-hmm. um, back then. And so I never even really pondered it as anything. Um, but after my first year at the U, I didn't do so well. So I went, I was, I grew up and went to this small Catholic school in Ogden where I went from kindergarten to 12th grade at the same school. And I graduated with 40 people and we were extremely sheltered and we felt like the other in Utah and all that kind of stuff. So I went from a school of 40 people, like a parochial private school where they, you know, where the rules were very strict and my folks were strict. And so when I got to the University University of Utah, I just went crazy. You know, I had a lot of fun Um, (laughs) and went back the summer after my freshman year with my tail between my legs to my mom and dad and said, you know, I'm making this decision for me. I'm just not who I want to be and went to Weber, Weber State, thinking that I would go back to the U in another year to join my friends again. That first year as a sophomore, I took a essay writing class from one of one of my favorite uh, professors there, Dr. Judy Elsley. I wrote a story, I wrote the silly story that has actually been published. It was published in, I'll, I'll find it for you, it's called The Push. It's about jumping off like those Olympics uh, platforms at Lava Hot Springs and how I pushed my brother off because I didn't want to go and he was going to kill me. And it was a silly story, right? And everybody else was writing these really heavy stories as college kids. In that class, it was the only creative writing class I ever took. She brought it up and she said, this is how you write a story. This is how you write an essay. I think that was it. I changed my degree to English and creative or English. to cre- uh, Didn't take another creative writing class until I got to grad school. I actually got my my degree in English and technical writing at Weber State because uh, again my, my dad was like you got to be practical if you're going to be an English major you need to you got to be do do something with it and I don't blame him but then I w- was going to looking into graduate schools because I wanted to teach Kansas State was the only school that took me as a creative writer everyone took me as comparative lit half Spanish half English you know or just straight up literature and I was like you know what I'm going to try it so I went to K State and majored in creative writing and. I've been in love with it ever since. But retrospectively, like I said, looking back, I've always been a writer. You know, I've always been, I've always written. I've always put my words down on page, even if they were awful and cheesy love lyrics or whatever they were. But I knew then. I knew, I actually knew it that day when Dr. Elsley said, this is how you write a story. I felt so much, not hubris, not in one way hubris. Just, I just felt so, I don't know, fulfilled, happy, mm-hmm. thrilled uh, that somebody would read something and and say, wow, that spoke to me. That's the key too, right? Is we we don't write, most of us don't write for the money. Uh, we write for someone to say, God, you made me feel less alone in the world. You were um, recognized. 
Yeah, and that felt so. If you know, it felt like, oh man, this guy can tell a story, and especially with nonfiction, if somebody says, "You made me feel like I'm not the only one who's had that emotion," I feel less alone. That's all. That's that's. So I mean, I was an essayist from 2001 until 2020. So that's Wild Grasses came out in 2021. So I was an essayist for 21 years, and then Wild Grasses came out. That was my first piece of fiction I ever published in my life. That whole first 20 years was by writing about essays and about people and about myself and kind of exploring how we live our lives. Um, I'm sorry, I'm long-winded today. It's probably because I can't see you. I'm just like, well, I might as well just chat. I love this. I'm, I'm learning so much. And, you know, one thing I love, too, about your writing is it's so honest. Your uh, story about Mrs. O, Mm -hmm. you wrote, we would pull our eyelids thin by tugging our skin and yelling, Konnichiwa. Mm -hmm. I'm Mrs. O because that's exactly what happened. This was in the 80s and in Utah, I guess, being little racist bastards was okay. You know, that's just so honest. And then you write, it wasn't, I know that. It's just such a vivid honest portrayal of what little kids were like, little sixth grade boys were like, and and the fact that you recognize all of that that you did. Yeah. Yeah, that's the goal, right? I exactly. mean, that's the goal is to use these essays to explore these things, because I had that twinge of shame when I was there. Mm-hmm. I, I did in sixth grade. I knew it was wrong, but it's so natural for young boys to just do what the group is doing. Sure. And that's that's another part of growing up, I think, and to recognize it and now to teach my son. You know, that's the thing. It's like I write so many of these essays about childhood just so I can dissect, digest what I did. Mm-hmm. And when I have a conversation with him, say, don't do that. I know it's hard with your friends, but don't do that. It's not OK. And I'm very blunt with him just because I don't want him to carry that stuff with him for his whole life about how he was so cruel to a Japanese-American teacher. I don't want him to carry that. If I can't be honest, like, on the page, then what's the point? You know, why Why make myself look good if... I Sure, I could. I could I could have pinned that on other kids. You know, I could have. I could have pinned it on other kids. Um, but why? Why gloss over something? You know, maybe my son will read it someday and say, geez, at least I think my dad's grown as a person. Maybe he'll be proud of me. We ha- all have those shared memories of things that we did when we were kids that were, you know, embarrassing, mm-hmm. not not always the right thing. We were making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Even if we didn't do exactly what you did, it still is, th- your writing's thought-provoking, and it brings back other memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because we all have something, don't we? Exactly. Uh, exactly. And it, I, don't know exactly. About, I don't know about you guys, but I don't. I was perfect <laughs> Well, you know, honestly, Steve, I was gonna, I was gonna say that. I was gonna say, I doubt Steve does. <laughs> I, if he said he did, I wouldn't believe it. I just wouldn't believe it. Not at all. Yeah, my dad would be horrified sometimes. But. <laughs> Case when you when you dream. Do mm-hmm. you dream like the rest of us, or do you see words on a page? Oh, I think like the rest of you. Okay. The rest of everybody else. Did you ever read that that article about how, which this one's, it's kind of the same, but it's kind of not the same. Um, did you ever read that article about um, how some people don't have an inner voice? Did you read that research? I did not. No. So recently, you have to look it up when we get out of here, but it says that some people 
because you know i i don't know about you but i talk to myself in my brain all the time there's that inner voice you know there's that and this is kind of the dream thing yes that inner voice where i'm having conversations with myself or i'm having conversations with other people in my brain that have never happened all the time and the research said that like 30 to 40 percent of people don't have that inner voice really they're just living their lives like second per second without having that continual inner voice chatting to them or editing them throughout the day which blows my absolute mind but at the same time you You've seen these folks, right? They just say whatever they want. It just comes out. And you're like, oh, did you think about that? But that, going back to your dream thing, I'm always in my brain. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm always plotting, thinking, writing, especially nonfiction in my brain. There's not day go by day goes by that I think, well, that could be an essay. They rarely turn into one. If there's multiple days that go by and it's the same thing that I'm thinking about, you know what I mean? Like that one moment last Monday, and I think about that moment on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, I'm like, okay, this is an essay. If I think about something on Monday and something different on Tuesday, those don't turn into essays, but it's those ones that keep popping back up. And that doesn't answer your dream question, but I think it kind of, like, it's like, where are we in our brains, right? It, It does. And that was really fascinating about a lot of people do not have an inner voice. Sometimes I am so busy talking to myself that I don't mm-hmm. hear my husband. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, he, and he starts to talk and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm talking to myself here. <laughs> I'll get back with you in a minute. I am the same way. Like I can Are just you? disappear forever into my own brain. And luckily my wife's the exact same way. So it's like we're walking around the house. Oh, having 10 conversations in our heads, but not to each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. How about you, Steve? Do you do that? Well, I talk to myself a lot, so. Okay. Yeah. You know, people would come by my office, which when I had an office, it was typically the lights were out. And then they would look in and say, I was wondered who was in there and or is someone else in there with you because I hear you talk. No, yeah. Yeah, so that's me. I talk to myself a lot. Okay. A, A new thing now, the AI Mm-hmm. Like the chat box. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Are you familiar with the writer Craig Lancaster? Do you know Craig? No. No. He's read his book. He's a great guy. And we actually started chatting about this on our podcast uh, last January. And having just come from the high school, uh, you know, Steve and Linda, I, that was a big deal. Like kids were already using AI to turn in their papers. So I had already shifted to only in-class essays. Or if they were doing it at home, I saw every draft drafted in front of me in class mm-hmm. so that I knew that they weren't going to AI. So it was it's a big deal. It's a big deal. I mean, I read an article yesterday in the New York Times called The End of the Out-of-Class Essay for College, college, college Students, which I think that's what's going to happen. I do. You know, I think that when it comes to academia, things are just going to have to go back to paper and pencil or typing right there with no internet access, which to me, honestly, I, I'm fine with. Honestly, I'm fine with that. I think that's great for people's students' brains is to sit down and write. You know, I really, really do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that hurts anything. When it comes to creative writing, I know there has been quite a few books published like on Amazon right now that are like about creative writing, like creative writing, like handbooks and stuff like that, if that makes sense, like how to do this and how to do that. They were AI generated, but they're really bad. The sad part is, is AI is getting better, um, and it will continue to get better. But Craig Lancaster, we were chatting about this, and he has no problem with it. And his his view on it, at least from the creative writing perspective in, in fiction and in nonfiction, is that every character, and I'm quoting Craig, every character we write has a little bit of ourselves in that character. 
And it also has a little bit of somebody else we know in that character. And that's nothing that AI could ever recreate. So while I, I think an AI right now could push out a romance novel, probably a bad one, some romance novels out there, novelists out there are absolutely brilliant. So an AI couldn't copy him. But I think his answer is right. No matter how good it gets, there won't be that as- aspect of it that to truly know characters when written. Maybe that's a rosy view of things. But I, I, I tend to, I, I agree with him. That's really interesting, and it goes along with what I think about the visual AI art, Mm -hmm. because it's technically correct. Everything is beautiful, but there's something missing. I mostly look at portraits because I'm a portrait artist, but when you look at the AI portraits, it's like there's no soul in these people. There's no emotion. It's just all perfectly done, Mm -hmm. but it's not real. Right. Right. That's how I feel. Last question. Okay. Um, What has inspired you this past week? The cars. Okay, yeah, because then I was going to ask you about the the Candio cover. Shoot, that was in my notes. Oh, was it? Yeah, the cars. Yeah. I just finished that essay this morning, Steve. Did you? I started it it last week, wrapped it up this morning at 3,000 words, much longer than I thought it was going to be. And it's an essay about, it's an essay about shame. You know, again, back to shame about the shame, you know, sexuality and growing up and becoming a young man and all that wrapped into the photo of or the cover art for an album in the from 1979. But lately, honestly, just like we talked about before, I'm writing again. I'm writing consistently every day and it feels amazing. And that in itself has inspired me to get up the next day and, and, and get going and and to finish this collection. Yeah. And and I, I get to see that play out a little bit on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I've been yeah, I've been doing that lately too. Like nobody cares, but I'm putting it out there. You know, so I'm gonna, it's like it's like my own kind of like what's the word? Um, keeping myself honest and um, what what am I what am I trying to say? Where making sure I get the work done. You know, uh, accountability online. Case, this has been such a fantastic interview, and you've inspired me today. It's just, your your work's amazing. I can't wait to get out and look up more of your writings and, and read more of your honest and emotional portrayals. And your characters sound wonderful as well. So thank you for talking with us. Yes, Case, Case thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad we didn't do this back in February. Because it would have yeah. been just boring me. Instead, no. I brought the fantastic Linda with all her good questions. Not just boring you, but also happy Linda's here for sure. Um, thank no, you. thank you so much. I think I talked way too much, but I apologize. But to your to your listener, I you know I'm sorry. I, I, I went off on some tangents, but oh, <laughs> accept was... my apologies. Well, that's that's why you listen to podcasts, right? True. Yeah, that's true. I yeah. can't I can't listen to enough of them, so I need to start listening to your humanities. Yeah, that, those will come out the 1st of September, the first ones. Okay. okay. Yeah. No apologies. It was fantastic. Great oh, information. Well, so. Great. Just great talk. Thank you. All right, Case. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Thanks again. All right, bye. Bye. I love his work. Broadcasting from the Mesquite Works Steam Center in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Artbox sponsors thank you for listening. You can find us on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
We welcome all comments. You can email us at artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Yes.